unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Bashev. Two weeks ago, the foreign and defense ministers of the United States and India met in Washington for the fourth annual U.S.-India 2 plus 2 dialogue. The annual meeting has become an important focal point in the growing partnership between the U.S. and India, and this year's edition received even more scrutiny than usual. For one, it featured a high-level virtual meeting between Prime Minister Modi and President Biden, but it also took place against the backdrop of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and tensions in the bilateral relationship over how that conflict should be handled. To discuss the key takeaways from the 2 plus 2, I'm joined on the show today by Josh White. Josh is Associate Professor at Johns Hopkins Sice in Washington, D.C., and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Josh uh, also has extensive experience working uh, in the bowels of the U.S. government, having done stints at both the National Security Council and the Pentagon, so has had a, a front row seat uh, to the, the, the sausage making that is U.S.-India relations. Josh, I am super excited that, that you could come on the show. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I, I realized that I said that you worked in the bowels of the U.S. government, which which um, is, is not quite accurate. You were uh, very much in, um, in 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 significant positions uh, at a time when this relationship was uh, it kind of had an interesting in, inflection point, and and maybe that's a good place to start. Um, you know, during your time at the NSC, you put together your fair share of high level dialogues between the U.S. and India. You, you know, give us a sense of what happens when you're kind of staffing one of these big summits. You know, wh what is it like in the lead up in the days leading up to one of these high level ministerial summits? Sure. Well, these are obviously a, a ton of work for bureaucrats, but there's there's a perverse way in which bureaucrats like these kind of events because they raise the stakes, right? They uh, Everyone wants to avoid embarrassing their uh, institutions and their leaders. So it creates useful pressure to, to get things done. So, I mean, on the substantive side, I'll start with, with the substance. Um, once you have a date that's reasonably firm, you uh, usually a few months in advance, both sides start this torturous process of trying to uh, decide a basket of deliverables. Uh, and it's not as pleasant as it sounds, but you sit down on your own side, you think, uh, hey, what can we sign by the time the leader is coming? Well, if we can't sign it, if it won't be ready to sign, can we announce an intent to negotiate or a dialogue? Well, if it's if it's not ready for a dialogue, can we drop a hint about a new area of cooperation? Or can we, and I'm not making this up, can we use a word or phrase that has not been used in previous joint statements that signals something new and interesting? So this happens on each side, and then together, you craft a joint statement, and the government that is hosting usually takes the pen, which means they write the first draft that both sides then respond to. And these these documents, you know, your uh, listeners may have noticed, they don't come out at the beginning of the meeting. Sometimes they come out at the end or as the visiting delegation is is about to go wheels up to their next location. So these can be negotiated until until the very last moment. So th that's on the substantive side. On the stylistic side, um, which includes you know schedules and protocols and logistics, uh, it's in some ways just as interesting. And here. The emphasis is really on storytelling. So what do you want this event to say? Like, what is the overall message? 
And this is why those typically very dull readouts of the meetings between ministers or leaders are actually drafted before the meetings, because you think in advance about the message you want, and then you'll tweak them in order to make sure that the the readout matches what actually happened. But you know, in, in this case, uh, the the meetings that just took place, you can see some evidence of this storytelling. So you had a, a meeting, a virtual meeting between Biden and Modi, which, as I read the message, it was, look, we may differ on Russia Ukraine. But the overall relationship is broad because we're talking about all of these different things, and it's strong because we're smiling and we're confident, right? And then on the, for example, on the defense side, Rajnath Singh, uh, he met with U.S. Uh, defense industry leaders, which I took, you know, the optics of that meeting to, to say, you know, don't worry, we'll still buy U.S. defense equipment, but you guys got to get serious about making India. Right. Or he went to PACOM, um, Indo-PACOM in Hawaii, and they gave him a briefing about integrated air and missile defense systems, which I took as a, a, a sort of a stagecraft saying, look, you guys really don't need to look to the Russians for your air defense needs for the, for, you know, for the long future. Right? So this isn't to say that everything is staged and everything is a is a production. You know, the personalities matter. There are nego- real negotiations. Things fall through or they don't. But it is to say that there is um, a fair amount of, uh, of staging and message crafting that goes into the kinds of meetings and what they look like, and that much of that has already been worked out by the time any two leaders sit down. So, uh, so that's a fascinating peek into to sort of what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, before we kind of come to that uh, tortuous negotiation of this current joint statement and when what's in it, l- let me just maybe start by asking you about kind of the overall direction of U.S.-India relations, particularly since this president, President Biden, took office. Um, we're going to talk about Russia-Ukraine. kind of hard to avoid, but if we, we leave that aside for a moment. Um, as you watch this visit unfold, you know, how would you characterize the kind of broad trajectory of U.S.-India ties since January 2021, when when the new administration came in, overall it's been it's been positive. You know, I expressed some concern in and around January 2021 that the relationship was too heavily dependent on the defense elements. And you know, sure, we'll probably talk about this. The defense elements are are going pretty well, but we've also seen consistent with what the Biden administration is interested in broadly, good work on COVID response and public health. Uh, supply chain security, uh, emerging technologies, um, and engaging India in wider conversations about what's happening in the Indo-Pacific through the Quad. So I think all of that is is positive. Um, there are a couple of things that are concerning t- to me about the trajectory. Uh, one is on the trade and development side. Uh, Biden's trade and development agenda globally, but I think particularly in Asia, feels listless. Uh, apparently, there's something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is going to be revealed in its its glory in the coming months. Uh, no one really knows if that will have any bearing on India or any appeal for India. And so, you know, there's concern it will have a lot of a lot of asks and not many many gives. So, on the trade and economic side, I think it's uh, really waiting to see what the ambition looks like. Um, and you know the other thing that that worries me, taking an even further step back, is that we've seen since the George W. Bush administration incremental progress, steady and incremental incremental progress in the relationship. And 
you know, I, I worry that incrementalism just might not be enough to deal with the broader challenges that China's posing to the U.S. and to India from its, you know, what's happening in the military domain, huge investments in technology, its engagement with international institutions, uh, what it's doing in South Asia. You know, I think there are just these questions of does the sort of steady incremental pace of the relationship really match the challenges that, that China's posing in the region? And uh, I don't think we have a clear answer to that, but that's certainly a worry. So so I was I was telling a friend that I was going to do an episode on this subject, and she said, please, please, please don't make this just about Russia-Ukraine. But we do have to talk about Russia-Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk. Um, and a lot of it has been Twitter talk, which is not always real talk, but uh, about what this means. And it seems like things are really proceeding along two very different lines, right? You have the government-to-government diplomacy, which is fairly calm, fairly sober, adaptive, reasonably consistent, uh, as you mentioned. Then there's the commentary track, right? And that's gone wild. That's totally riled up. It's very charged. Uh, analysts from both countries have written, you know, strongly worded op-eds, you know, trading accusations or, or, or thinly veiled barbs at the other. Um, do you agree with that assessment as I've laid it out? And, and, and are these truly separate or are there places where they're actually kind of intersecting? Well, this is an area where we can be glad that Twitter is not, in fact, real life. <laughs> uh, you know, these are two real expressions of a legitimate dispute and a legitimate point of, of tension. You know, probably the most serious um, irritant in the relationship since the Copragate affair of a few years back. Certainly, what, some of what's in the media is is hyperbolic and overblown. But, you know, I think if you look at this from, um, from the way that sort of the sober-minded folks in the U.S. government are looking at it, I think it's entirely possible that they believe three separate things simultaneously. One is that uh, they recognize India cannot easily or quickly change its posture toward Russia for a whole range of historical and economic and uh, reasons and dependencies. Uh, Second, I think they recognize that public pressure on India to do so is not going to work because India thinks that its material interests are, are very much at stake. So the students in Ukraine, the deep defense dependencies, and then third, you know, points one and two not, notwithstanding, it's still important or even necessary to publicly register some level of disappointment with India because it lays down a marker about what are supposedly shared norms. And it's a way of saying this is going to continue to be an irritant, not until you uh, completely distance yourself from Russia, but until you begin to address some of the, the problems here. Um, and this is, you know, this is an area that behind the scenes, it's not just that the United States has been flagging for India the risks of the relationship with Russia, but Indian strategists since the mid-80s have been ringing alarm bells about India's dependency on the Soviets and then later the Russians on the equipment, on the supply to, um, supply relationships, and so forth. And you know, it's clear that India, with the S-400 and other systems, it took a calculated risk that it could in some ways increase those dependencies. And, you know, that risk just didn't didn't really pay off. So I think there are these sort of two narratives about what is happening. I don't think it's right to say that the U.S. is insisting that India choose sides in a dramatic fashion. But it is a way, I think, for the United States to signal that as much as India wants to pursue a kind of all of the above foreign policy with all partners and keeping all of its options open, 
there are actually real risks to that kind of foreign policy. And it does preclude certain kinds of deeper interaction with the United States and others. And this, you know, this episode, as unfortunate as it is, is a way for the United States to to highlight that and for both countries to work through it, which I think behind closed doors they probably are. So, you know, one of the most talked about issues in this whole bucket of, uh, of, of issues that, that, that uh, have been a source of tension in U.S.-India ties is this question of CATSA sanctions, right? There is a debate in Washington about whether India's purchase of the S-400 missile system from Russia constitutes a violation of U.S.-imposed CATSA sanctions. I think most people think it probably does. But the bigger question is, you know, will the Biden administration exercise its waiver authority essentially to give India a free pass. Um, where does this debate stand today? Because I feel like we've been talking about it for a really, really long time, but I'm not sure at least I know any more today than I did, you know, six months ago. To be honest, in the United States, I don't think there's much of a debate about it. I think most people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, think that uh, you know India cl- crossed the threshold of this being a significant transaction with a Russian entity, that India deserves a waiver, that the legislative language uh, can be read in such a way as to justify a waiver, and that India will probably ultimately get a waiver. Now, not everyone thinks that. You know, Senator Menendez uh, and other prominent um, politicians have a different view, but it's actually kind of an outlier view. That's not to say this is easy or that the outcome is a foregone conclusion or that any of us can predict when it's going to happen. But the administration does have wide discretion as to when to make a determination. Personally, I think the administration erred by not doing so early in their term. You know, as we say, rip the Band-Aid off, get the paint over with, and eliminate the uncertainty that was and still is, as you suggest, casting a shadow over the relationship, not only in the defense sector, but in other commercial areas as well. Uh, for whatever reason, they, they didn't do that maybe because bureaucracies love to defer decisions to another day, right? But the reality is that today, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this is now politically much more difficult than it would have been six months or a year ago. And that cloud is still hanging over the relationship in some very unhelpful ways. Uh, and it's not clear how long the administration is going to wait before it addresses what is is going to be any way they do it, sort of an awkward, um, uh, uh, an awkward act. But do you think, Josh, just to, to, to spend another second on this, that 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 the reason the Biden administration hasn't taken a clear stance on this is because it believes it exercises some degree of leverage. That if they tell their Indian interlocutors, well, you know, we're not sure if Congress will go along with this, and you know that that it somehow can shape future Indian behavior about purchases? Or do you think that's kind of uh, a pie-in-the-sky sort of daydream? It's possible. The Indians have been so clear about the fact that they are, uh, you know, they're not going to box up and send back their S-400s. Uh, you know, I think the the Katza threat, uh, and certainly now the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its implications will shape the Indians' calculations about future Russian uh, purchases. But I tend to think that the delay on the U.S. side was less an attempt to gain leverage and more a sort of bureaucratic path dependence of not wanting to make 
a difficult decision uh, and uh, deferring it and unfortunately deferring it to a moment when it became harder and not easier. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So uh, let's come now to the kind of real nitty gritty of the two plus two. Um, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts as uh, an insider, kind of what parts of the joint statement really jumped out at you. I mean, I reread it in advance of this podcast and it really is sprawling, right? I mean, you got health in there, you have climate, you have cyber, you have space, you have defense technology, of course, you have a bit on economics, you have a lot on supply chains. Um you know, if you had to kind of boil it down to sort of Josh White's greatest hits, you know, what are kind of like two or three of the big things that stood out for you? You're right. There is a lot in there. And you could tell that part of the challenge was just figuring out what those what those headers should be to capture the different uh, subject areas. Yeah, there were probably three things that stood out to me. Um, uh, the first was the steady drumbeat in this joint statement and those over the last you know year and more on public health. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, every U.S. engagement with allies and partners today highlights public health, but India really matters and it matters to the United States um, on this issue. It matters because of its scale, because of its vaccine production infrastructure, because you can't build a, a global disease surveillance uh, program or network without India because it has expertise on a lot of these issues. And I think what we see in the joint statement here, in, in, seen in continuity with some of the other meetings over the last year, is that this is just a real growth area for the U.S.-India partnership. Uh, you know, at my university at Johns Hopkins, I can barely keep up with the uh, the new partnerships that Hopkins is building in public health with Indian institutions every month. I mean, there's there's a lot of potential, and I think this is one of the things that the joint statement highlights in a in a really good way. The second is on space cooperation, uh, and the joint statement uh, notes that the two sides signed a memorandum of understanding on space situational awareness, and announced a new uh, defense space dialogue that's going to start this year. This, I think, is something that is starting small, but is going to grow in scope and importance. Um, will these dialogues be used to compare notes on exciting topics like space trash? Um, yes, they, they will. Uh, could they be used in the future to eventually coordinate policies on um, direct ascent anti-satellite tests, on which the United States recently announced a moratorium? Yes, they could. Could they be used in the future to collaborate on sensitive issues related to to satellite resilience, you know, making India's satellites uh, more resilient against a variety of Chinese anti-space weapons. Yes, I mean this is a domain where we're starting small. We have some civilian cooperation, but these kind of st structures and MOUs and conversations could eventually touch on a wide range of things that really matter for India's economy and security. So that was, a, I think, a little bit of a preview in the joint statement as to what's coming. Uh, and, and third, on the, in the maritime domain, 
Um, here, the big announcement was India's decision to join the Combined Maritime Forces Task Force as an associate partner. Setting aside that nobody I've talked to knows what an associate partner is, uh, it sounds it sounds relatively ambitious and prestigious. Um, India will be joining a, a very interesting uh, structure. Um, there are four task forces that operate in the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, uh, and this is this is a win-win. India is very focused on its uh, western naval front. Um, for a number of, of important strategic and economic reasons. So its ability to interact with those players and this task force, task forces operating out of Bahrain is, is really important. And then the joint statement also mentions some other maritime stuff, including a reference to underwater domain awareness, which, again, might not sound that exciting, but uh, underwater domain awareness, trying to detect submarines from long distances is really one of the hardest things that militaries do. You need very advanced materials. You need very sophisticated, super secret signal processing. And the fact that these conversations are starting uh, in important ways between the US and India, I think is a sign that both recognize the value of working together here and that we'll see a lot more in future years. I, I'm tempted to title this podcast Space Trash and other things you didn't know that you cared about. I think there was like a movie a few years ago about space trash, you know, uh, uh, um, hurtling towards the earth. Um, let me ask you about defense, which is something that you've thought a lot about, which, of course, you know, figured very heavily in the joint scene. It's not new. It has for, 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 for many past iterations. You had written a report, it probably feels like ancient history now, in January of last year for Brookings, and we'll link to that in the show notes, on the kind of next phase of the U.S.-India defense security relationship. And in that report, um, you called on both countries to really redouble their efforts to engage in sort of sustained collaboration um, uh, for technology, cooperation, co-development. Um, a lot of analysts have privately mused that this Defense Trade and Technology Initiative, DTTI, as it's called, set up in 2012, um, to facilitate this kind of cooperation has not necessarily... Uh, delivered the goods. Um, you were in government at the time. You had a hand in setting this up. Uh, you, I'm sure, have watched it very closely in the years since then. Um, is there some truth to, to 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 kind of what the cynics say, or is that not really the an accurate kind of representation of of, of where we've traveled over the past ten years? Well, I mean, I, I wish I could give you a, a really nuanced answer, but in some ways, the cynics are are right here. Uh, DTTI has been underwhelming. Um, some of the more ambitious parts of it that we launched, um, wor uh, proposing working together on jet engine technologies, for example, have been suspended. Some of the other projects on, you know, chem bio suits are interesting, but not uh, highly sophisticated. Some proposals were nixed by the Indians, some by, by the Americans. Um, there are some new projects in the mix, but it's still really unclear where this is going. So in that sense, the skeptics and the cynics are right. What I think is really interesting is that we don't yet fully understand why DTTI and the broader efforts over the last 20 years to build a defense innovation partnership have not been successful. And I'm actually launching a research project that looks at, at this question, among others, um, so maybe you can invite me back in a couple of years and I'll sound more confident in my analytic judgments. 
But, you know, I'm also going to look at how India engages its defense partnerships with Russia, France, and Israel and try to understand this. I do think broadly based, there are three main explanations for why this hasn't worked. Uh, and we, we don't really know which one of these is, is, is dominant. Some people principally blame the United States, right? The U.S. hasn't released the most super secret technology to India. Uh, it proposes projects that are too modest, or it tries to give India just enough of one of those T's, technology, so that we could get the other T, trade. Um, some people, on the other hand, principally blame the Indian system, right? I remember uh, DRDO uh, always asking the United States for the most obscure, super secret widgets, right? Well, at the same time, the Indian system was very skeptical of longer-term collaborations that would integrate our defense supply chains, right? U.S. critics have also said, look, India is trying to develop an entire procurement uh uh, ecosystem indigenously, but its defense capital budget is not nearly big enough to sustain that. Right? So there are certainly critiques that point at, at uh, Indian policies and Indian behavior. And then third, there are those who say, well, this is really about structural mismatches between our two defense systems. India's defense industrial base is still mostly dominated by public sector undertakings, whereas the U.S. system is dominated by private firms and private firms, you know, your Lockheeds and Boeings of the world, they need to have a business case to give some sensitive technology to an Indian partner. There are a lot of these asymmetries. So I don't think we know what the answer to this question is. And the Biden administration has done some good work in leaning into new domains that are important, you know, cyber, AI, space, um, unmanned vehicles in air and maritime domains. All of that's good. But I don't think we yet have a clear roadmap of how best to cooperate uh, in building a defense innovation ecosystem or which technologies are most amenable to doing this between our two countries or where in the research pipeline it's most effective to cooperate, basic R&D or as you're putting the finishing touches on some kind of cooperative system that was mostly developed by the Americans or the Indians. So well, a lot of big questions there that we're, I think we're only starting to explore. But it, it, could there be a silver lining, Josh, in that even if there isn't some big, bright, shiny new object that you can point out that was a result of this, the fact that something like DTTI means that the two militaries and the civilian establishments are talking more frequently, more intensely, trying to do this problem solving, like, is that in some sense also a deliverable that's important? It, it is. And, and I would actually argue that the bright, shiny objects can be a distraction, that it's better to focus on, you know, think about the kinds of technologies that allow India to see more clearly what's happening across the huge expanse of, of its country in the Indian Ocean and allow it, it to operate. Uh, those kind of technologies might not be as as uh, exciting on their face, but are very important. The other thing that this kind of steady engagement on technology does is uh, is it encourages interoperability between the two militaries. You know, the Indians see how the U.S. uses a particular system. Maybe they help create a help us create a better version of it that we then deploy together. Then we're both operating the same kind of platforms in the same kind of ways. Uh, and that builds the deeper ties between our military services and the civilian leadership that can really matter 
in any kind of conflict or uh, crisis environment that may uh, may happen in coming years. So, so just kind of building off of that, Josh, you know, um, some people have said, including some U.S. government officials, that um, there are things that happen between the U.S. and India increasingly that are uh, behind the scenes. They are sensitive. They are highly classified. Um, and obviously, you know, we can't discuss details on this podcast, but just broadly speaking, like, how do you see the evolution on that front, on the cooperation on intelligence, highly sensitive defense issues? Um, has has that changed significantly since you were last in the Pentagon um, uh, in the Obama administration? Uh, it has, and it's really difficult to put a, a finger on uh, exactly how and where, but uh, I can give a, you know, a few thoughts on, on this front. One is that some of the public commentary can be a good proxy for what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, no U.S. administration would talk about building interoperability with Indian forces because that was seen as politically toxic. Uh, we couldn't talk about anti-submarine warfare uh, or anything that might suggest that we were helping India uh, more closely and accurately watch uh, Chinese submarines in the Indian Ocean. Now these things are a staple of our joint statements. So there's a comfort level in the public domain in talking about some of these sensitive mission sets. And I think we can only presume that behind the scenes, the conversation has become more uh, granular, more technical, and more valuable for both sides. So let me ask you about that. In the last couple of years, the U.S. and India have signed a number of important foundational agreements. Have those had any impact? Um, these are hard to assess because they're not. Uh, the text isn't in the public domain, but the the Comcasa, which is the Communications Interoperability uh, Agreement, this was very important because it what it has enabled is a set of secure terminals on Indian vessels and Indian bases, which can interface with U.S. systems um, at the secret level. It's called a secure enclave. It doesn't give the U.S. access to Indian networks or vice versa, but it allows for kind of a secure chat and email and application framework. And, you know, my guess is that once you have that infrastructure, you're likely to share assessments and it's, it's clearly being used during exercises. But let's be honest, once you have that infrastructure in place, you could also use it if there's a crisis. You could share real-time intelligence. You could coordinate responses in the moment. So the infrastructure creates more opportunities for engagement. Similarly, the, the BECA, which is this other agreement on geospatial information, you know, a lot of it is, is uh, sensitive but unclassified maps. And the U.S. and India haven't been explicit about how they're using it, but presumably this could be very useful to India in the context of monitoring the Sino-Indian border, right? getting accurate maps, being able to quickly receive imagery. If you combine these two agreements, then you could see how having the physical infrastructure to communicate plus the agreement to receive this geospatial information could be useful in peacetime and very, very useful in a tense environment where the U.S. and India want to touch base quickly and figure out how to support each other. All right, Josh, we are going to now test your uh, versatility here by moving to a very different topic. Uh, before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you about uh, something that is adjacent to the 2 plus 2. 
which is developments in the region. Um, and maybe start with with Pakistan, um, where where you have done um, just some terrific work. Uh, as most of our listeners will know, Pakistan has a new government. Uh, it's led by Shabazz Sharif, the brother of the former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, uh, who was also the former Chief Minister of, of the province of Punjab. Uh, he takes over from Imran Khan, who was ousted in a uh, really dramatic, very contentious, no confidence vote and various maneuverings around that vote. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, as you reflect on the two plus two, you know, are there changes that Pakistan is likely to undergo that are going to have a relationship or have a bearing on on where U.S. India goes? I mean, you know, we've worked a lot to dehyphenate relations between India and Pakistan, but obviously um, th- there are uh, connections here. Um, you know, how do you think about U.S. India in the context of, of, of these dramatic developments that we've seen in, in its neighbor? Uh, it, it certainly has been uh, dramatic, and I've uh, myself have learned uh, a lot of details I never, I never thought I was interested in uh, pertaining to Pakistani parliamentary procedure. Um, you know, I, it's important to recognize first that the Shabazz Sharif-led coalition government will will be short-lived. Uh, elections are due by by uh, the fall of 2023, and it might be fragile because coalition governments are very hard to sustain. Um, but you know, from the point of view of the United States, thinking about the wider implications, you know, I think there are a few to consider. Uh, first, Shabazz is a very adept uh, uh, politician with a technocratic bent, and he will probably be more competent and sober-minded in managing the economy than uh, Imran Khan was. Uh, he also brings sort of a clean slate to the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. The Biden team gave Imran Khan the cold shoulder in a a number of ways. Um, You know, Biden never called him, and there were other indicators, in part because of his anti-American rhetoric, his embrace of the Taliban. Uh, You know, you can argue about whether that was wise, and I'm not sure that it was, but there's now some real opportunity for a reset with Pakistan in a way that could be helpful in some some modest ways. I think we're likely to see Shabazz Sharif move very quickly to try to reboot the second phase of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which very much languished under Imran Khan. Uh, This is not necessarily bad for the United States. Uh, I think an economically stable and vibrant Pakistan is probably good for everyone, including India. But it's worth watching how that unfolds and what sectors are really substantively integrated into this next uh, form of, uh, of CPAC. Uh, and then when it comes to the India-Pakistan r- relationship, I don't think we really know what Shubha Sharif's posture would be in, in a crisis. I mean, he has long had a strong relationship with the military, uh, better than that of his elder brother. Um, his tone toward India has been relatively tempered. But we have to remember that Imran Khan, who was less predictable, who had a complex relationship with the army, who played to populist sentiment, he was able to de-escalate the Balakot crisis when it seemed that it might continue to escalate. So I think it's difficult to predict, and we should have some humility in in trying to assess how a particular leader with a fragile coalition government uh, might respond if India-Pakistan uh, uh, tensions escalate uh, again in the future. Last question. Let me let me push you a little bit further uh, west and, and ask you about Afghanistan. Um, 
you wrote a piece for Brookings uh, just a couple months ago outlining some of the key non-state threats that could emerge from the Taliban's takeover of the country. Um, you know, if you were back in government, Josh, uh, lying uh, awake at night, uh, you know, thinking about w what's happening and how you're going to manage it, you know, at, at the NSC, what are the, the kind of top things that you're worrying about? What are some of those big risk factors? Um, you know, here we are six months in after the Taliban's return. I think the biggest risk remains the prospect of a slow motion humanitarian catastrophe that that brings further suffering to this this war scarred society and you know creates refugee flows and really precludes any government the Taliban or any other local authority from from building governance structures and and delivering services you know over a, a medium to long horizon that's a nightmare for the United States for every country in the region so that rightly is uh, priority number 1 for the United States the second risk um, you know, I could talk about Al Qaeda or ISIS or specific militant groups, but my real concern here is what we don't know and what we can no longer see. You know, after we left Afghanistan, uh, particularly in the way that we did, our visibility into what's happening there decreased uh, precipitously. And at the same time, uh, ISIS has taken advantage of this environment and has been targeting the Taliban government quite relentlessly. And that has incentivized the Taliban to keep all of the other array of militant groups closely on side. They don't want to act against al-Qaeda or Jaisi Muhammad or Lashkari Taiba because they want a united front to deal with the threat that ISIS poses. What this means is that all of these militant groups are interacting very closely. They may be developing new training partnerships or new operational partnerships that are focused on India or the United States or Europe. And we probably wouldn't be able to see that. So what keeps me up at night is what we don't know. It's the opacity of this environment to us and the risk that there are new militant joint ventures that are leveraging each other's comparative advantages and plotting things against the United States, India, uh, and our partners that we might not see until it's too late. That's just a reality of this new, more, more chaotic environment. It's, it's a sad reality. Uh, but it's what we don't know that could really hurt us. My guest on the show this week is Josh White. He is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Sice and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of After the Foundational Agreements, an agenda for U.S.-India defense and security cooperation. It's arguably the best guide we have to understanding where U.S.-India defense ties uh, stand today in 2022. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to have you on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.